politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. We're heard all over Southern California at 90.7 FM and streamed for the world at kpfk.org. Thanks a lot for being here. This is a show I must say that I've been looking forward to uh, for some time. And uh, our our guest is very well known. I'd be surprised if you weren't familiar with some of his books, his his contributions. You'll find them all over the Internet. His most recent book, which we're going to focus on today, has a wonderful title of Wisdom is Bliss. And who doesn't want more bliss and (laughs) more wisdom in their lives? And... uh, he is Robert Thurman, uh, academic, uh, academician, I should say, and a scholar, uh, and uh, a, a devotee of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And Robert, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm very happy to be with you here and all the wonderful people in Los Angeles and that area. And you're on the East Coast somewhere. Yes, yes, I'm in the notorious Woodstock. Uh, where we didn't have the concert, but uh, it had our name. And uh, beautiful Catskills, uh, very lush, lots of water. We feel guilty every time it rains, actually, because out west you guys really need it. And if I could do a rain dance from a distance, I would, for you, because we have lots of it, and on the Hudson Valley here, you know. And I'm very happy to be with you here, Michael. Well, thank you. Uh, I look forward to this interview because I... One of the things that I really enjoy about Buddhism, and I think of myself as really eclectic, I've been interested, continue to be interested in all religions, but moreover, beyond the uh, traditional or fundamentalist or orthodoxy of institutionalized religion, the uh, the mysticism that tends to unite, if not harmonize, maybe is a better Mm -hmm. word, all of the various religious traditions. And uh, Buddhism, I think of as more a philosophy than a religion, though I understand people practice it as a religion. What was your original interest in Buddhism as a young Um, man? Well, my, my interest in Buddhism was I wanted to understand reality. I wanted to know what I was and what it was the world. And everyone in my early education in America um, were just telling me I couldn't understand, and I had to believe this and that version that they told me. And uh, then I constantly asked them the question, it used to drive a pastor crazy in a, in a church that I would go to sometimes to play basketball and sing in a choir. Well, luckily, my parents were not very church-going, but anyway, they had me do that. And um, he would tell me, well, you can't understand. You just have to believe. And I said, well, that means you don't understand, and you're just believing. Well, yes, he says. So then I said, well, how can you be sure I can't understand? And I said, since you don't know. (laughs) Why should I listen to you? 
And then, you know, we went on and on with that for a long time. We were friendly, too. And then uh, and then the science people also tell you, you analyze this, analyze that, and you know lots about it, and you measure it and add it up and blah, blah, but you still don't understand it. Then you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. And uh, this really bothered me that there uh, was a, you know, I didn't really understand, know why, but I had felt, felt, well, we live here, we were, we, we adapted, we evolved to be here. It seems like a nice place when, when, we, when we're adapted nicely to it. So why couldn't we understand what it is? And then suddenly I encountered Nagarjuna and Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, and, uh, you know, ancient India, and they said, oh, yeah, you can understand. And not only that, but if you want to be happy, you have to. So, oh, well, okay, let me get busy on that, I felt, you know. So I left Harvard and went to India. And, um, you know, I was helped by a little bit psychedelics, I could say. And, and, and strangely, I was helped by an accident uh, where I lost an eye in my playboy, 20-year-old, happily married and already life. And uh, I realized sort of impermanence, you know, shock, you know. And so, I, I, as I like to say, I had a midlife crisis at 20, which is quite a good thing to do because then you still have your you have aptitude to learn uh, quite intensely. I mean, you can do it at 42, but you're a little bit more stuck in your ways at 40. So I, then I decided I'm going to learn how, how to understand the world. And that was really it. I wasn't looking for religion. I wasn't looking for, like, some just membership. Do you know what I mean? I was properly alienated like a good old American individualist, and I wanted to understand, you know. And if if, if understanding mean, meant I would belong to something, that would be okay, or if it meant I didn't belong to anything, that would be okay. Because I thought reality is reality, and I have to know what it is. And uh, that was my main thing. Of all the different schools of Buddhism, in the East in particular, why did you choose Tibetan Buddhism? Well, actually, the, I really didn't choose Tibetan. I chose the great masters and enlightened beings of India. But then I discovered that they, when I went to India that the Indian people had forgotten about them. And they had their religions and their different things, but they they had lost the Buddha. And then I met all the Tibetans who just that time, 1962, were, had just fled starting in 59 intensively, some of the smarter ones earlier. And I, I met the Tibetans and oh, they knew and they knew and they considered their Buddhism to be the preservation of the real Indian one from the great Nalanda University, you know, which took me time to learn all those kind of things. But, you know, I wasn't one of those. I, some of my friends in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, when they heard the name Dalai Lama, they hair stood on in and all that somewhere in Toronto or something you know and then so that drew them to Tibet specifically but to me it was the science of the mind and of the world which uh, the Shakyamuni Buddha was an Indian you know what we now today is called Indian and so was Nagarjuna and Asanga Chandrakirti all the really great amazing there's you know the Aristotle's you know, the Wittgensteins, ancient Wittgensteins of, of India. And that they were the ones that really um, had got my attention, you know. But then the Tibetans, so kind and so sincere about it and so highly rational about it, they, they delivered that, which uh, I didn't find anyone in India who could do at that time. From my reading, uh, if I remember correctly, Tibet more than a thousand years ago is a pretty wild place in that 
about 1000 AD, the king invited a Buddhist teacher to come and share the Dharma with Tibetans. Uh, have, I, have I got the timeline right? Was it yeah, about- yeah. Well, he, well he, they started actually around 600, and uh, they sent people to learn what was the magic of India. It started then, and then the famous incident you're referring to was around 800, and uh, and they because they were they're wild conquerors actually they were feared by the Chinese they they even conquered China at one point overthrew the the emperor and uh, they conquered the Silk Route for a couple of centuries and they marauded down in Nepal and Bengal and those places and they 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 even they still have the armor from Harun al Rashid's army the Caliph of Baghdad they beat up the they're the only ones who could beat up the Caliph of Baghdad's armies so then they, they that's why there's some Something amazing about the Tibetans, who are, which I've come to totally love, of course, which is that they were conquerors. You know, they had the Pentagon, and no one could defeat them. And when they were, you know, egocentric into conquering others, and um, but they discovered it's much more fun to conquer yourself and then have fun <laughs> in the world than to go beat up people. It's too tiring, you know. And so they stopped doing that. Over it took them about four or five hundred years to sort of overcome twenty, twenty-five, thirty generations to overcome the the sort of you know macho business, you know, and uh, which they did, and they they became the, the most heavily monasticized society in the world. They sort of reproduced the great monastic universities of India in their small population, Tibet, ending up with about twenty percent people who were celibate, just. You know, doing, you know, sublimating their erotic energies into like visionary realms, you know, type of thing. I understand that uh, you took some precepts. You were a monk for a while. Why did you decide to give that up? Uh, well, I was advised by my Mr. Miyagi first teacher, <laughs> who was actually a, a Mongolian in New Jersey, strangely. I went to India, but I found him in New Jersey after going to India. Anyway, he, he said, you're not going to be a monk. Don't be a monk. You're living like one. It's okay to do that, to focus on your study and meditation and practice. But long term, that's not your karma, you know, not your destiny. Like, don't do it. But I wouldn't listen because I was so enchanted and so delighted to discover the method of coming to understanding, as I told you, which is what I wanted, you know, and I really was thrilled. So the monk is a, a practical thing where you get a free lunch for life. It's like getting a MacArthur Fellowship, but you know, you don't get a million dollars, but you get you get a free lunch, and therefore you can study and meditate all the time, you know. But unfortunately, you have to be in a society where they're willing to give you a free lunch. And America, no lunch, no job, no work, no nothing. So, I, which I didn't quite recognize at that moment, you know, I thought, well, the world would take care of me. But uh, I was wrong, and I realized that, um, I mean, it took me four, four, four and a half years to realize that. And uh, even Dalai Lama, you know, the, when my my first teacher, Geshe Wangyal, took me to the Dalai Lama, the reason he did it was he said, maybe Dalai Lama will make you a monk since you're such a determined to be a monk, even though I told you no. And, uh, I, and he said, I'll take you over to him. Maybe he'll change your mind. But then when he introduced me to Dalai Lama in 1964, uh, he told Dalai Lama, don't make him a monk. 
he wants to be, and his his wish is sincere, but he's impractical, and he won't be able to stay a monk. So so don't make him a monk. But then he said, well, you're the Dalai Lama, you decide. So, so then Dalai Lama did, and then I didn't follow. After a while, he was upset with me for a while, but then he, we were such good friends by then that he kind of forgave me gradually. And it took a little while. How does one find a teacher if people are listening to us now on the radio and they have to admit they've always been curious about buddhism mm-hmm. how, do, how do they proceed i mean we have the books right there's a lot of books yes and i've been reading them all my life but i've always longed for somebody to you know sort of fill in the missing bits and uh Yes, yes, well, yeah, well, a good teacher is very important, you know, it's like you want to learn chemistry or biology, you need to go and take biology 101 and then 201, etc. And a good teacher is very important, and at a very advanced sort of yoga level, a guru is, is very useful. Although in Buddhism, in general, because the goal is to understand the world and only you can do it yourself, they have a wonderful thing where they say, well, your real teacher is your own inner reason, your inner wisdom, reason which turns into, goes even beyond reason and unreason and becomes wisdom. But, but it led the path to that is reason. Unreason from the beginning will not help. In fact, it will harm enormously. And they, um, so they have the idea that the model of the teacher is the friend, what they call a spiritual friend, who helps you along, but keeps reminding you it's up to you, you have to figure it out, and here's the method to do so. Buddha himself said, he said, just by adopting what I say and just repeating it like a parrot, that won't give you the experience of the reality that you need. And, and uh, you have to, but I can help you with the method of how you bring it out of yourself, your own wisdom. And so from the very beginning, he was an educator. He was, he didn't pretend he could save you or he, and he, he talked to God, different ones. And main one that other people thought was the creator, which who told them, I'm actually not the creator. I'm not the boss. I don't control it all. We all work it out together, you know. And, uh, and so in general, he introduced into India the idea that the human being has the gift, has the genius to understand themselves. That means everyone, women more than men, actually, and, and even men, <laughs> even a warrior, macho, Rambo men. And, but, but they, you know, they need education to develop and bring out that ability. So he totally was, you know, the four friendly fun facts that you like in the subtitle of My Wisdom is Bliss book, the friendly fun facts are the basically the curriculum that the Buddha set forth. And some people see it as a therapeutic curriculum, which you can see it that way, and some as an educational curriculum, you can see it that way. But that's what it is. It's not a, a dogma that you believe the four noble truths, or the friendly, which I prefer to call the friendly fun facts, and um, you just believe in them, and that'll help you. No, that, that won't. I mean, giving some credibility so you learn them, that will help. But just sitting, I believe the four friendly fun facts, that's not going to help. You have to actually investigate them, understand them, realize them. And that's your own effort to do. So when you really are ready to do that, then they say a teacher will appear, and that, that, that has been my luck. And I think that's happening in the world, actually. The other, just the other day, day before yesterday, Dalai Lama was online giving a teaching from Dharamsala, India, and he's 87 now, and he doesn't. And it's been COVID, right? COVID, COVID, COVID for a few years. 
still are still lurking around, and um, it's tiresome to travel and everything. And he's so happy. He was saying he loves the internet because he can just give a teaching in his in his own uh, like drawing room, and they and and a million people can listen to it. And he's so pleased, you know. And how how wonderful is that? He said, I think, and that is true, you know. Because, you know, the people have to understand. That's the key thing. We need educated people. And you can have, you know, our, our, the education I worked in professionally as, a, as an academic, and I'm retired, by the way, so I'm a little more free now, but they, that I worked in for 50 years. We don't really fully properly educate people. We teach them skills, and we hopefully we can try to model some good behavior to give them a little ethical sense. But we don't really help them change their instrument of their knowing. And the instrument, we don't help them overcome their prejudices enough. We don't teach them to focus their mind at a higher degree, a higher frequency by meditating, which is not the be-all and end-all, but it's an important tool. And uh, and we don't do that in academia. They, they think we're being religious if we do that or something. And uh, there are some great things about academia that you, you don't proselytize, you're not supposed to, etc., although they do proselytize materialism, actually, the science people, but you're not supposed to. And um, that's good, because it, it opens the critical mind of people, you know, so they won't be taken in by con men or con women, you know. They learn to think critically. That's important. So the fun facts you're referring to yes. in your book, Wisdom is Bliss, are the four noble truths. Right. Well, well, I think them. the first three noble truths are pretty straightforward, that there is suffering in life, that uh, secondly, we bring it on by our grasping or self-grasping ignorance in particular yeah. our false sense of who we really are yeah. and our relationship to the world and then yes. basically to stop doing that and then the fourth is the one that I find the most challenging and that's the Eightfold Noble Path Right. I've heard you speak about that Eightfold Path falling into three categories mm-hmm. yeah, the three educa- higher educations I call them or super educations to just to t- change the term from from uh, college uh, from the Ivy League. <laughs> well, if and I remember is, right, you described them as the study of the mind, the um, the uh, search for wisdom, and oh, the pursuit of virtue. Yes, yes, the ethics, the super education in ethics, super education in mind, which is not just the study, but also the development of higher faculties of the mind, greater concentration and so on. And then the discovery of nature of reality, which is what wisdom is supposed to be. You know what's real and you know can distinguish it from what's unreal. And uh, with critical wisdom, and those are the three educations. And the you know, one and two are the wisdom one, three, four, five are the ethical one, and seven and eight are the mind one, and then six is the the sort of uh, creativity and and energy and effort that drives all three of the higher edu- super educations. Yeah, that's a straightforward one. But that, but actually, the most challenging one is not them. And is the third one, actually, because what the third one tells us is something that is is counterintuitive and is not a fact or a truth for most of us, which is that life is 
good. Life is bliss. Life is freedom from suffering. The real reality of the world is goodness and love and so on. And that's not how we experience reality habitually, because we feel we're separate from the world and others, and they know a lot of stuff comes at us, a lot of dissatisfaction, pain, you know, danger, you know, and we're in this battle against the vast, infinite thing. We don't know what it is. And, uh, and we're so par- we're paranoid, you know, we're frightened. And so it's the, the, to switch our, ma- and, and furthermore, societies, especially authoritarian, militaristic type of societies, you know, male chauvinist dominated societies like ours, and most of the ones in the last few thousand years in history, they tell us to be very scared. Because the bosses want to pretend they can protect us, and they want us to be obedient to them. So they say, oh, if you don't have this belief, and if you don't have this discipline, and if you don't have this king, and or this president, or this dictator, or whatever it is, you're going to be in danger, and somebody else is going to get you, or the germs, or something, you know. So they always pretend they're going to protect you, and you need them. So they have they have conditioned all the world cultures, including the Asian ones. You know, it's not like like the, the sacred East is going to save us. They all do that in order to dominate the individual. And uh, they discourage us from thinking that we can know, you know, like uh, that we can listen to Emerson. You know, it's like Harvard Divinity School kicked out Emerson after one lecture, the great Emerson, and never invited him back. And he was the greatest teacher of America for 20 years, 30 years after that. But the, the authority people don't like people to be free. They're scared of free people because they don't, they can't m- manipulate them. And um, so they do anything they can do to put people under con- under their control. And they, they, one of the key ways is to frighten you about life. Whereas actually Buddha's discovery was, he was a true revolutionary because he taught life is pure goodness. If you understand it, the, if the, the problem you have with it is your failure, is your misunderstanding of it, actually, not just actively not knowing it, passively not knowing it, but actively misknowing it, thinking it's something else than what it is, and fighting with it. And it overcomes you inevitably when you fight with the world. You can't, even, even the dictator of Russia is not able to, <laughs> is not able to have a date in Kiev where he wants to go and be popular, and he's, he hasn't managed. He's just hiding in a cellar someplace, <laughs> bombing everybody and destroying everything, sadly. Not himself, or most of all. Robert, I need to take a short break, but oh, okay. uh, let's tackle the big one on the other side. Let's talk about what is reality okay. and uh, sure. uh, the trickster of the physical world, why it seems so apparently yes. uh, solid and, and, and real. Uh, my guest is Robert Thurman. A great Tibetan Buddhist scholar, and uh, his latest book is Wisdom is Bliss. And we'll return right after this short break. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is KPFK. Because she understood her language, the next day she quit the job. Took it off the table. The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. That's fantastic. That's interesting. I love it. It really does. It really does show you answers to things. Because she understood the dream... 
it. She uh, acted on it like the next morning. How can we expedite that and remember our dreams more? The Aware Show with Lisa Gar, Wednesday and Thursday afternoons at 1. This is KPFK. KPFK and your radio. I'm Michael Bemmer, and this is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We're talking about Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, with uh, Robert Thurman, who's written scores of books most recently. Uh, Wisdom is Bliss. That's the book we're talking about today in the Four Noble Truths. and Some basic concepts of Buddhism and Robert, I think when we address the big question, what is reality, the Buddhist idea of emptiness, I think, is pretty darn challenging for most of us. Can you uh, explain the concept of emptiness to us? Well, you know, it might it help it'll help us as Americans if you if I say, well, you could very well translate that word by the English word freedom. But what you don't, people don't realize who, who, who love freedom is that freedom is a negation. You know, sugar-free, salt-free, trouble-free, whatever, you know, uh, interest-free, you know. So free negates the sugar and the salt and the interest, so it should. And so uh, emptiness just is a negation. And it's really, it, 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 it doesn't mean people wrong, some people, some even Buddhists actually wrongly think it means nothingness. That everything is nothing, and then they're scared of that, which you should be. Except, of course, nothing. Luckily, is nothing, so it's nothing to be afraid. <laughs> but people don't realize that since they keep making things out of their terms for things, and uh, especially the materialist scientists do. They think death is so scary because you become nothing. But actually, you can't become nothing. It's a problem with that, because there's no place to go. That's nothing. There's no there, there. There's no nothing in nothing. And to believe that you're going to be nothing is a, a form of insanity, actually. Um, so, but never mind that. I'll get. I might get to that. But the point is, free, therefore, it means freedom. So, what freedom is, is the freedom to be all that you can be, as my cousin Max Thurman said on the Army commercial. You know, be all that you can be. It's in the army, do you know what I mean? In his case, he was saying, "I was saying, be all that you can be and love everybody and be happy." Like Baba Ramdas says, my old buddy Richard Alpert, and who became our American Hindu saint. And uh, so, freedom—if you translate that—it sort of takes the scare out of it. And if you think of empty, well, if your glass is empty, then you can fill it up with some nice thing to drink. Do you know, if your time is empty, you're free to take a break, you know. So they should stop being so scared of it. It absolutely is not nothing, is the key point to understand about it. And what it is, actually, is, see, Buddha, when we look to understand reality, what we want to know is what is the reliable reality. We want to know what the, what's the real reality, you can put it that way, you know, because there are illusory realities. You know, you can hallucinate, you can have a dream, you can have a terrible thing happen to you in a dream, and then you wake up and it didn't happen. So that's an illusory reality from the point of view of waking reality. And it turns out Buddha was looking for that absolute. And, you know, monotheists, they think it's God. And they th- they have this idea that an absolute person could relate to the world by creating it without being relational, which, of course, is not rational. And Buddha was using reason like scientific exploration of his own experience and his own understanding, his own good inner wisdom. And he realized that, finally, he realized an absolute is irrelevant 
because an absolute can't relate to be in order to be absolute. So what I really need to understand is the relative world. So what emptiness means is that the relative world is the absolute. And that's and it's different from materialism who thinks there's an absolute underlying the relative world, which is nothingness, which is where the mind goes when you die. And what sort of makes you entropy, you know, makes you scared of entropy. And like poor Stephen Pinker is terribly scared of entropy, even though he thinks there's no, you know, he's a materialist, you know, he's a triumphal materialist. He thinks that's enlightenment. And it is a kind of enlightenment in terms of getting a Away from the Inquisition and being sent to hell by some nasty, nasty priest you know, in the Inquisition, and it's better to think that everything is just anesthesia ultimately. But the point about Nirvana is it's better than anesthesia, which is bliss, is what it is. Freedom is really bliss. It's release into feeling your real feeling as a wonderful, complex, multi-celled being, capable of orgasm, capable of joy, capable of love and of help and of and of having a wonderful time and breathing the air that the trees give us, you know. The trees and the plants swallow up our carbon when we don't dump too much of it on them and they give us back the lovely oxygen and we take a deep breath and feel better, you know. And it's a bl- it's bliss. So that's a, that's a great difference. So by discovering emptiness of all kinds of false absolutes, you know, because then again, even we, even the the Western Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century, they got rid of being scared of God, but and they thought they were looking. They started out to look at God's world that He created. They thought, and then they sort of jumped, dumped God, and he, you know, God died right in their minds, and they're just materialists. But unfortunately, what they not realize is they have reified, that is to say, made into an absolute some big dark space that they think is nothing where they're going. And they, you know, when the body's gone, then they're just going to be nothing. And that has made our culture reckless, where we're destroying our planet just to grab some greedy Vegas, you know, like a gold pot of gold or something, you know. And, and that's destroying us. We're destroying ourselves that way. So emptiness and is really the discovery of freedom. And not just freedom, even to, not only political freedom, but freedom in terms of freedom to come into full openness, awareness, joy, friendliness, and so forth. So, you know, I took the Four Noble Truths, which Buddha in his time called noble, well, the word satya, which is translated as a truth, because also simply means a reality or a fact. So there, you can call it four facts, you know, and that makes that takes it out of the. When you call it truth, you think, oh, that's the credo. That's what you're supposed to believe in, because there's this, the, the the concept is stuck in people's head that Buddhism is religion, and they think of religion as some domineering ideology that you have to believe or you're doomed, you know. And that's not the case. Buddha presented facts that he discovered, and uh, and the fact of the unenlightened life is going to be unsatisfactory. That's the first. Fact. And and he called it noble, yeah. He called it noble because he wanted to the world the word noble in that time meant some sort of upper class person. And he wanted to say that's what's really the top class thing is is to is uh, is this this fact. It's it's true for someone who really is uh, a, a, a kind of better person. Uh, it's a fact for them. It isn't a fact for an ordinary, self centered, selfish, you know, exploitive, egotistical person. It isn't a fact for them. They think they're going to be fine when they have their third or their hundredth billion dollars. They think they're going to be fine, you know. 
that kind of upper person, you know, or when they get another, have another ritual in their church or whatever it was in Buddha's time, you know. So I, I changed it to friendly because, you know, someone who you like is someone who's friendly. <laughs> so if someone who knows reality knows that you're just as important as they are, and that makes you friendly. Do you know what I mean? If you think your friend is important as you, you're going to be nice to that friend. And so they, I call them friendly facts. So things that are factual for friendly persons. And that is that a selfish way of relating to reality by misunderstanding it is going to be, is unfriendly and you don't, and it won't be a fact for you. And you won't understand that's causing the problem. And you won't realize that life itself is fine if you're easygoing about it. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's, that's why I called it a fun fact. And it's even fun. Life is actually fun. I think one of the, at least from my perspective, the big problems with uh, investing in a belief that there is an objective, solid world out there mm -hmm. is the uh, subject-object split, the dualism mm -hmm. of this or that. Mm -hmm. And the whole feeling that we're separate, that we're, uh, I sometimes think... Uh, of uh, being like a billiard ball on a pool table, bouncing mm -hmm. around, crashing into these other uh -huh. separated objects. And uh, the idea of harmony and unity of being part of an energy field, so to mm -hmm. speak, and, mm -hmm. and everything being connected as a mm -hmm. kind of a universal ecosystem, a spiritual uh, mm -hmm. uh, symbiotic, uh, just one thing at work here, mm -hmm. I, I think is... Mm -hmm difficult given the way we've been immersed in in empiricism mm -hmm, sure you want to talk about this illusion of separation a little bit yes so they see the great thing is in a way in the western enlightenment which we really appreciate actually and that buddhist who understands buddhism and realizes buddha really likes it and because the escaping from feeling caught up in some absolute boss who becomes sort of sits behind the high priest who tortures them and the king who sends them off to war and because it's absolute you have to do it so you can die for it so that was a big step forward but the problem was the kind of idea of thinking that there's a nothing out there that's the opposite of the world in a way the materialists although they they're completely dedicated to manipulating matter the scientists to understanding matter and frightened of quantum theory because it taught them they don't know what matter is they can't actually catch it you know and but anyway uh, they also know it's an illusion because it's absolute to them is nothing because that's where they're going when they die is nothing and that's what underlies everything when they commit suicide blow their brains out because they're just unhappy about or mad at somebody or unhappy about something and they think they're going into anesthesia it's a way of anesthetizing themselves for eternity they think and that's completely irrational to think that because nothing is nothing so you can't go there but it's a step forward from thinking that the absolute is a mean guy who's going to send you to hell if you have a little fun like Mark Twain said, you know, like he didn't want to be good because heaven was so boring. He would rather go out and gamble and whatever. And that's why people behave so badly. You know, <laughs> remember Mark Twain? <laughs> 
it's just like heaven is like a church social, and who wants to spend eternity in a church social, you know? They never <laughs> talk about the religious people. What do you do in heaven? <laughs> That's exactly right. So, well, you, you, you get scolded by Beatrice if you're Dante, and then you sing in the choir, you know? And you're still not God. In India, at least, because Buddha was there, even though they forgot what Buddha really said, but still they got the idea that you could be God. And that's like a Western mystic thing, and that's better than being nothing. So, you know, you sort of share the whatever glory, whatever glory you attribute to some absolute that isn't you. But the point about Buddha's discovery is wonderful is, okay, now if you discover a plane of infinite energy, which we call the clear light or the transparency of the void of emptiness, clear light of emptiness, if you discover that, you are discovering a field of infinite energy, which is all of us are, okay? And But that's tricky because if it's infinite, it doesn't do anything because it's all done as far as it's concerned. Everything's perfect. It's all finished. There's nowhere to go. And so there's nowhere, no need to go anywhere because you are everywhere once you're one with that and you're there in the fullness of bliss. And so, but it's very quiet. It seems at first very quiet. It seems like maybe it's nothing. And it's a little scary moment where, oh, gee whiz, maybe this is nothing because this shows the illusoriness of my person, my separated structure of my, my subjectivity. It shows that it's illusory to me. I discover that. But then you release into it, and then you're everywhere with everyone, and and you see the beauty of it all, you know. And then even what is more wonderful, since there's since it isn't something other than this, since it is all of this, and this is where the trickiness has to be dealt with. Since it is all of this, you can be in it and be engaged in this as responsible as with your sector of it, so to speak. You know, you know you're an illusion being separate, and the other one seeming separateness is illusion. But it's still real to them, and and you can play with that illusion in a way where they can enjoy it as much as you do. And that's called love, where you want them to be just as happy as you feel. And that's the nice part about it, whereas the nothingness thing is, boom, in a way it makes all that you did in this life irrelevant. And all that you do is useless because it ends up as eternal nothing. They're very proud of we accept meaninglessness of life. Well, there is an ultimate meaninglessness which means you can give and create, you're free to create relative meaning which is happiness and love for everyone. And you have a power to do it when you realize that's the absolute. You know, you can you can deploy that infinite, any piece of that inexhaustible infinite energy to make things better, always. And that's 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 the sort of step further than materialistic nihilism uh, is is to materialistic everythingism, <laughs> something like that, something like that, and. Uh, and that's that's what that's why Buddha was popular, you know. You know, Western people wrongly think that, that people like things like Buddhism and Taoism from Asia because they're underdeveloped. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Exxon, you know, oil refineries and Charles Koch to like make the you know be an anarchist and a libertarian and wreck everything. And uh, and so therefore they were suffering so much they just accepted suffering and they think that's what Buddhism is you just accept suffering. Absolutely not the case. You you can have you can live happily with an intermediate technology. You can use you know positive energy, solar, whatever you we can you can use these things well. And that's what we're gonna do now, actually, on this planet. 
Life is JPFK a, is going to triumph <laughs> in the meta world. <laughs> Thank you for that. The allegory of the movie theater often comes to mind for me, and I don't know, like any allegory, it has its limitations. Yes. But it's like, where does the movie go after the credits are done rolling? And, well, it doesn't go anywhere. And uh, where have you been, and where are you now while you're still in the theater? And I think it was Ramana Maharshi, actually, that uh, said also, if the lights come up in the middle of the movie, the movie fades. So that clear light of wisdom could allow us to be in the movie theater and see the movie, but also remember that we are watching a projection. Yes. Uh, does that work for you? Yes, it's, of course it does. It's the most famous one. The most famous one is the mirror, actually. The mirror in the old days, you know, but a movie works great. Like Baba Ramdas used to always say that now back to the movie, you know, and he wanted to he wanted to get to the one, and he kept making a division because of his the you know what he studied what he studied and so forth that he would go to a one away from the movie. But what he has discovered since then, dear Baba Ramdas, who I knew when he was only dear Richard Alpert, but what he's discovered is he's still here. He's everywhere. He's all there with all his friends. They're still hanging out there, having things. He's there. You know, he's still now. He can swim. He's like the guy. I love the guy in the in the Avatar when he got in the he got put in the in the coffin. You know, in the, well, like a coffin, but it was a thing where you could shift bodies to get to be in the body of a Navi person. You know, and suddenly he had legs again, and he had a tail, and he had a big stalled blue body, and he could climb trees. And he was remember he went racing off. He was so happy. Remember they were scared what was going to happen to him, but he was Jake. You know, he was so happy as a as a Navi because he'd been crippled. Right, he'd had his spine nerve severed, and he couldn't walk, and um, he was quad, uh, quad, uh, paraplegic. So that's what Baba Ramdas has discovered. I know that. He's happy. He's happy as, as a bee, I can tell you, right now. And but he, because, he, because he, like me, uh, you and I, we're all brought up in this thing that he, it's just us. We're doing this. We make the best of it. We're existentialists. We're going to have fun. But, you know, ultimately it's meaningless, so we're very reckless. And so we don't really think that we can be like this and play and be in the movie for the ages and make a better movie. <laughs> but that's what we can do, according to Buddha. That's Buddha's discovery, and that's the fun fact. And so that's why I call them friendly fun facts. And education is an education to how to have more fun. Because if you're a loving person, as you know, you love others, that means you want them to be happy. Because that's, that's what love is. And then when they're happy, and if you've helped them be more happy, they love you back. And then you, they make you more happy. And then it's just, there's an exponential growth of love, actually. And that's what we're up to. That's what we're doing on this planet right now. And we have a few guys who are stuck in, I mean, the idea of a war? On this planet where everybody can photograph every atrocity with six iPhones and already old fashioned, even whatever kind of, you know, everybody knows everything now. And so it's ridiculous to think you can conquer some country. All you can destroy a lot of stuff if you have equipment left over from the 20th century. It won't help at all. So that's, we've reached that state. It's just that there's, unfortunately, there's like we're the habitual leadership issues and, and structures where we'll accept authoritarian leadership. You know, my great, I'm a great fan, a great Buddha, modern Buddha for me was Wilhelm Reich. 
with this concept of the emotional plague, you know, that people, when they are like afraid to feel good, they're going to like authoritarian fascist type structures and they're going to support them and because they're going to think if I can at least dominate some other person then I'll feel better because they don't feel good but people who feel good are never going to want to dominate anybody they're going to want to be friendly they want to have fun with them is what they're going to have and uh, that's what that's what the clear light is clear light is bliss void your Buddha's final word was bliss void indivisible or bliss freedom you could say indivisible you know, that was his final word. But bliss freedom isn't kind of the, the anarchistic libertarian freedom where you're free to hurt somebody else because you're actually not free to hurt somebody else because they are connected with you. If you hurt them, they'll hurt you back and, and your freedom will not be enjoyable. You know, freedom to be kind is what it is. I'm often fascinated by the degree to which people embrace their suffering and their fear almost uh, as if, uh, well, it is familiar to them. I think there's a certain bizarre comfort in knowing your suffering. It's your old friend. But there's also this uh, crazy idea that somehow fear will make us safe, that it's a way of being careful, and that if I allow myself to feel happy, then I'm putting myself in grave danger. Mm-hmm. What insanity is this? It's terrible. I mean, really, we really well, well, we're conditioned to have that insanity in order to make us pliable tools for militaristic, dominating type people who who will get us to feel that you know it's, it's right not to feel good. And anybody who does, it must be Satan. Remember that Saturday Night Live skip? I don't know if you see that, bother to see that in Los Angeles, you know. Someone, church lady, remember church chat? Sure. Would say, oh, you had fun at the concert? Well, was, did you meet Satan? Remember? <laughs> so, so it's bad to feel good, so therefore crush anybody who feels good. And then that way, you get a bunch of soldiers and troops, they'll beat up their wives, they'll have a lousy home life, they'll be ready to run out and die in a war for you. And, and then you get more territory so you can have more food and you can have more of a bigger harem and then you don't know how to deal with any one member of the harem in a way to really be happy yourself and make them happy and you use them just they're like just like so many Japanese dolls and it's just ridiculous you know the way that people live when they don't really use the human instrument for bliss which is the human embodiment we are the we are the potentially the happiest of the animals that we know about there are some pleasure heavens that we might think were satanic if you meant to describe them to people but but who are used to being uptight but they're but we are capable of great joy human beings and we have had our great mystics and poets and things we often too often have killed them or impoverished them or tor- tormented them but we've had them and we all can have lives that are really meaningful and good like that it's what it's what buddha introduced in asia so it did become more peaceful so therefore they were conquered by the more uptight anglos and, Fr- and francos and people who who were who were more uptight and uh and then they, you know, then you, at first you have the Lord Clive and, you know, the Indian mutiny and destroying all the happiness of Indians. And then finally you have the Beatles with Maharishi, right? Here comes the sun. 
So they were absorbed, you could say, by the happier culture, you know. And uh, it didn't seem like a good culture to the to the militarized Westerners because they were conquerable. But there is this thing of being open and vulnerable to be happy. You have to be open, you know, and and less hard. On the other hand, fear. One thing I just want to say: it doesn't mean you become a doormat. You know, reasonable fear, like that truck is going to run over me if I don't step off the road. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's a defensive thing. It's very good. But paranoia. I want to blow up all the trucks in the world preemptively everywhere so none can run over me. That's that's of course insane and that's stupid. So, you know, a clear light of transparency is like to live a diamond, the diamond lifestyle, what I call the infinite lifestyle, and get rid of the... One of the things we have to confront, by the way, the big thing is death. And the, the, the Indian and Tibetan definition of death, which is a scientific one, not religious one, their discovery is that what death is, is where the body can no longer manage that infinite energy of the life force because it's crippled or destroyed or wounded or crushed or something's wrong, happened or old age, you know, it's, it's decayed. And so the life force wants a new vehicle. And what death is a moment of where you're in a Niagara, you touch on the infinity of the life force, actually. And if you've learned to be open and you could be happy in a discotheque, you're not scared of uh, those kind of special effects in movies that where you get streamed at, where you kind of lose your balance, you know, and you can do like that, then you can be reborn in a bigger body, in a happier one, even in a better better planetary setting. And you will. And so it's a, it's a quantum opportunity to make a quantum leap in your evolution if you're capable. But if you've lived very stingily and selfishly and with closed mind and narrow-minded dogmatic ideologies and I don't like other people and I'm all defended, you know, and all walled off to reality, then you might want to be reborn as a rhino or something. And believe me, rhinos have no foreplay. The rhinos have no fun. They, they, you wouldn't want to have a rhino massage. You know, you couldn't have any pleasure on your skin as a rhino. You're, yes, you have a thick skin, so you're defended, supposedly, from another rhino or from a lion or something, because they can't bite through your skin. But you're, 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 you've gone down in the scheme of openness to, to pleasure and openness to life. So we have to find, you know, the book, the book of the Dead, so-called, which is a mistranslation. The real name of that book is the Book of Natural Liberation in the between state, in the after-death state is what it is. And that is a scientific way of learning how to manage the death-rebirth transition and to navigate when you, it's like how to lucidly dream, how to navigate in a dream when a big monster is coming at you. I want to just close with a story. I know I'm sure we're running out of time. My dear friend, Dr. Nida, who uh, we're supposed to, we're trying to finish this book, which I've been delaying terribly. But anyway, we're trying to write a book about Tibetan medicine. But anyway, he has a wonderful story about a man who had a, a, a recurring nightmare of being chased by a demon and he got so bad he didn't want to fall asleep and he couldn't fall asleep and he was getting sicker and sicker because you know if you don't sleep well you really get sick and he went to doctor after doctor and they couldn't help you know and they gave him different soporifics and sleeping pills that all didn't help because the minute he fell asleep he would be chased by a demon go right into that dream so finally one doctor said well look I've given you pills and all this but it hasn't helped Obviously, you've got to face that demon in the dream. So the only way you're going to get out is you've got to face the demon. So just make it every time at night when you fall asleep, think, okay, in this dream, I'm going to talk to that demon. I'm going to face it. I'm going to fight with it. If this or whatever it is, I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to run away from it. So finally, 
One day he was desperate. He's having the dreams being chased by the demon. He turns, he faces the demon in the dream, and he screams at the demon, Why are you chasing me? And the demon says, I don't know. It's your dream. <laughs> I love that. That is something that's a very Tibetan humor, you know. I love it. Well, that's that's core psychotherapy and hypnotherapy. You you turn and face that which you least wish to address, and uh, right. it's once unmasked. It's usually a gift of some sort. It's a treasure. Right. Thank you, Robert. We've just scratched the surface. It's so wonderful chatting with you, getting to know you. Thank you, Michael. So many things I'd like to talk to you Me about. Me too. I feel that too. I will let you go by encouraging people to buy any one of your many, many books, but particularly Wisdom is Bliss. And Thank you. You'll find it That's everywhere. Good. A wonderful, fresh approach to the Four Noble Truths, or as Robert calls them. What, the Friendly Fun Facts? What do you call them? The Four Friendly Fun Facts. <laughs> the Four Friendly Fun Facts. Right. Don't you love the alliteration? Okay, thank you, Michael. Robert Thurman on KPFK. Thank you, sir. Take it easy, everybody. We'll be back with a little more right after this. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom. I'm Michael Benner, and this is KPFK. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for your donations and overwhelming support of this listener-sponsored community radio, KPFK. It is the support of listeners like you that keeps this station strong, fiercely independent, and powered by the people. Thank you from all of us at Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM. And welcome back to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK for Southern California and indeed the world at kpfk.org. I saved myself just uh, about four minutes here at the end of the show because I want to thank you. I want to thank you as a listener of this radio station. I want to doubly thank you if you've ever contributed anything financially or in terms of your time as a volunteer to this radio station and its great mission. I want to thank the ever-changing staff and management of KPFK. I've made so many wonderful friends here and people who will always be in my life. But it, it's really time to hang it up. I'm in my mid-70s, and I feel great. I'm vital. I just... Uh, I want to write another book. I want to spend more time with my wife. This is a big responsibility to do this show every week. And as much as I love it, I've done commercial radio my entire life since I was 18 years old in the mid-60s. And uh, it's been a blast. I absolutely live and breathe uh, radio. <laughs> I remember in the early 1970s when... The Yellow Brick Road album came out. They interviewed Elton John. And at one point, I said to him, Elton, if you weren't a big rock star, what would you want to be? And without hesitating, he said, your job, man, on the radio. And when I was in KLOS, Joe Walsh used to come in and do weekends and sit in for Gino Michelini. Being in the Eagles was not fulfilling enough for him. He was a frustrated DJ. I think, I think a lot of rock stars really are. And it's a wonderful gig. 
being on the radio in a big market like Los Angeles, all of Southern California, whether you're playing music or doing the news, as I often did, or a talk show, which is my real love, it's like driving a, a starship. It's just such an exciting feeling. And yet there's such intimacy at the same time with your listeners. I've just loved it. And the thousands of people that I've talked to on radio talk shows, it's just its just been a thrill for me. So there's a certain sadness that goes with announcing my retirement, but I'll keep it short and sweet. Just say thank you to each and every one of you. Thank you especially to my wife for supporting me through all of this mentally and emotionally and always being there for me and understanding if I had to go to work at 11 o'clock at night or whatever the case may have been. So thanks to Doreen for that. Thanks to everyone who ever called me, whoever wrote to me and uh, who have come to my classes over the years and my seminars and now my webinars online. I have a free Zoom class that I've been doing for about four and a half months already, every Sunday. Again, it's absolutely free, and if you want to attend it, it's called The Wisdom of the Soul. And it's really about expanding your awareness, about uh, accelerating your ability to understand, to gain insight, uh, to be more hip to the trick, to see the bigger picture. And uh, if that interests you, you might want to sit in on a couple of these and check it out. All you have to do is go to my primary website, michaelbenner.com, and click on free Zoom class. Leave your first name and your email, and you get a newsletter with the uh, the link to the Sunday Zoom class. And uh, I still do my private work, my counseling and training, and I'll continue to do that. And again, there's a certain sadness of saying goodbye and uh, hanging with my headphones forever. But uh, I'm real excited about what I'll be able to do with that extra time and new projects. So look for a second book, Fearless Intelligence. My first book is available everywhere books are sold. And uh, look for number two, uh, a title to be determined. (laughs) And one final thought. KPFK and Pacifica's mission is to educate you and motivate you to become socially and politically active, to make a difference in the world. But I want to appeal to you to get things straight, get the pony in front of the cart, so to speak. The rising tide of fascism in this country is not influencing the way people think and feel so much as it is a reflection. Our situation in America and the world is primarily a reflection of the way people think and feel of their consciousness. If you want to make a real difference, don't go out into the world with anger. Find your resolve and your determination in love and kindness. And change yourself. Discover and develop who you are, find your potential, realize and actualize that potential and take it into the world as a model of the kind of person you wish your neighbor was. And with that, thank you. As always, be gentle, love life, take care of each other. 
from Los Angeles. This is Michael Bemmer on KPFK 